Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are mostly theological and biblical, but in this series, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the fifth of eight episodes in a series that will track the history of the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry USA, Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. But don't call them Yankees. One of them, Alvis Duncan Hicks, was my ancestor, my grandmother's grandfather. We're following this unit from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. Now, why tell such a story about an uncelebrated unit and its unknown members? Because a person's life is not small and inconsequential because it is without fame. But often, one does not know how much the deeds of others influence the vicissitudes of one's life. Chapter 5 Burning Bridges, Part 1 Liberation So Close, Yet So Far September through November 1861. The Tennesseans marched down from Camp Wildcat to London, Kentucky on Monday, October 28th. After beating back Zollicoffer's column, their blood was up and they were ready for a fight. Certain that within just a few days they would be crossing the mountains back into their home state, overcoming all the rebels that didn't have the good sense to flee before their advance. It seemed that they had hardly gotten started when in mid-afternoon they were ordered to stop and make camp at an intersection three miles north of London. But they welcomed the opportunity to rest for a day before marching on. General Thomas, accompanied now by a small staff of aides, was seen riding through the camp and conferring intently with General Shep. Everyone was sure the liberation of East Tennessee was imminent. Well, one day turned into a week as October crept into November. And though the men continued to drill and to improve their skills every day, the orders to march south that they so eagerly anticipated never came down. The enlisted men began, for the first time, to grumble against Pap Thomas, wondering if he truly was old slow trot after all. The officers complained boldly to their generals and also to their political representatives about the perplexing delay. Some of the men and even the junior officers began to engage in rash and dangerous talk about taking matters into their own hands, even going renegade. The Tennesseans' impatience was not from boredom or loss of interest in being soldiers. Every new refugee that came into the camp from their home state, stampeders as the rebels called them, brought a new report of Confederate oppression, bullying, threats, vandalism, theft, forced evictions, forced conscription, confiscations, arrests, beatings, and worse. Their news had to come from the Stampeders because Parson Brownlow's newspaper, unrepentant and stridently anti-Confederate to the end, had finally been shut down in the past month and his building and printing presses confiscated. What's surprising, really, is how long a run it had after secession. Felix Zollicoffer, himself a newspaper man who believed in freedom of the press, had let Brownlow continued publishing for, for a long time, despite considerable pressure from Confederate officials and politicians who found his diatribes intolerable. Although the Union volunteers didn't think so, 
Zollicoffer truly was sympathetic toward those whose order had just been overturned, and he had tried to maintain a moderate and conciliatory policy towards dissenting citizens while establishing the new Confederate order in East Tennessee. The citizen general from Nashville, however, could not control everything in his jurisdiction. It was truly a brother-against-brother civil war in East Tennessee. For example, Alvis Duncan Hicks had two brothers-in-law, twins. One enlisted in the 2nd Tennessee in August and died in captivity in Richmond. The other either enlisted or was conscripted into the Confederate cavalry in 1863 and managed to survive the war. The families left at home had to deal with divided loyalties. Moreover, there were many who used the political changes to settle old scores, to establish their own seats of power. Knoxville saw a number of its prominent men arrested. Rebel informants were everywhere, and disagreements between neighbors often turned into charges of sedition. In the countryside, home guards <clears throat> helped the military patrols, often helping themselves to people's possessions while harassing those known to have pro-Union sentiments or relatives who had stampeded north. Suppression of dissent sometimes turned violent. Brownlow's Sketches of the Rise, Progress, and Decline of Secession, a tract published in 1862, includes drawn illustrations of such, including one of a Tennessee Unionist being flogged on a bare back with bundles of cut tree branches while uniformed rebels show rowdy approval. The Tennessee men in London must have regarded all of this as evidence that their loved ones were in great peril and hardship every day that passed. People still made it through railroad roadblocks and pickets into Kentucky, but they were generally either people of ample means who could afford the expense of vacating, or people of no means who had nothing to lose by leaving. Folks of modest means tended rather to stay put until their situation became absolutely intolerable. The volunteers were almost entirely of the latter type, whose mothers and children and sweethearts remained behind. The anxiety the men felt for them must have been acute. Troops from Indiana and Ohio, where families and friends were secure, or even those in still unsettled Kentucky, had no real idea what the Tennesseans were feeling and didn't understand why they were so upset all the time. None of those men knew how much their commanding general shared their frustration, being stymied both by the worries of his superiors and by the ineffectiveness of the U.S. Army supply line. Even less did they know of the secret sabotage operation behind enemy lines to support an invasion that would never take place. They would learn of it later, and it would make cancellation of their operation all the more bitter. At this point, I want to insert a word about my sources. Material for this episode has been gleaned from numerous sources, most of them in the public domain, including the official record. All quotes and citations from Oliver Temple refer to his book East Tennessee and the Civil War, published in 1899. One more modern source, however, has been especially helpful. Novelist Cameron Judd has written a non-fiction narrative of this little-known facet of history, The Bridge Burners, published in Johnson City, Tennessee, by Overmountain Press, 1995. Judd identifies the characters profiles them in context, clears up the timeline while telling the tale in an entertaining way. And it's been an invaluable help to me as I sought to keep the story straight. 
an audacious plan. I've already noted that from the time of his arrival at Camp Dick Robinson on September 15th, Brigadier General George Thomas had been working toward an incursion into East Tennessee. What he wanted to do was to drive through the Cumberland Gap, following the same route into Tennessee that Zollicoffer took northward into Kentucky. Now, though his time and attention were consumed by the task of single-handedly organizing, equipping, and training his fledgling army, he continually kept in view the objective of taking Tennessee in the east. And this is the very objective that Lincoln had in mind when he authorized the enlistment of volunteer regiments from Tennessee. The White House envisioned a swift Union takeover of that region before the Confederates had a chance to entrench themselves there. And if that could be accomplished, it would bisect the Confederacy and cut its only rail tie uh, through the Appalachian Divide, the East Tennessee and Virginia Railroad, also called the Grand Trunk. Shortly after the Union fiasco at Bull Run in July, Lincoln issued a memorandum containing the suggestion that a military expedition be launched from Cincinnati into East Tennessee. In late September, he wrote another in which he stated more pointedly, on or about the 5th of October, I wish a movement made to seize and hold a point on the railroad connecting Virginia and Tennessee near the mountain pass called Cumberland Gap. Still, a viable plan was lacking. But Washington was now putting constant pressure on Thomas to come up with one. At his first opportunity, Samuel P. Carter, one of Thomas's few officers with significant military experience but still awaiting his formal appointment to the rank of Brigadier General in the Army, told him of a plan that could fulfill his objective. It involved loyalist agents working from within that would prepare the way for the invasion force, and these agents would burn key railroad bridges and destroy telegraph lines and then with transportation and communications disrupted, a swift-moving army led by federal volunteers from Tennessee, men who knew the ground because it was their home territory, could immediately move in with minimal resistance from a crippled and confused Confederate force. And this army would re-establish that zone as a Union territory and base of operations all the way from Virginia border to Chattanooga, and thus cripple, shorten, and perhaps even end the rebellion in one economical blow. The author of this ambitious fifth-column scheme was a former pastor, the Reverend William Blount Carter, Jr., brother of Samuel P. and James P. T. Carter. Now, curiously, he was called Jr. after his uncle, not his father. Middle-born of the three brothers, the 40-year-old W. B. Carter followed his older brother Samuel to Princeton, but he chose divinity studies and secured ordination as a Presbyterian minister. He served for a few years as the pastor of the Rogersville Presbyterian Church until personal illness and the loss of his young wife to disease led him to retire in 1845 to a farm in Elizabethtown. In 1850, he remarried, and by the beginning of the war had fathered two children. Oliver Temple admiringly describes W. B. Carter as one who had few equals in scholarship, astuteness of intellect, and in logical analysis. William, lacking the physical vigor and aggressive disposition of his brothers, thought his own skills of persuasion and organization could be put to use in a non-military way. Sometime after the Greenville Convention, he traveled north to Kentucky 
While Samuel was in Barberville forming volunteer regiments and James was in Tennessee canvassing for recruits to fill them, William was writing letters, making contacts, and developing an underground network in East Tennessee. He was also investing a good deal of thought in a plan to sabotage the railroad. The plan piqued Thomas's interest, and all the more when he learned that it was Carter's clergyman brother who had developed it. The general was interested enough to invite the plan's author to explain it to him in person and to his superiors as well. On September 30th, barely two weeks after assuming command of Camp Dick Robinson, George Thomas hosted a meeting at his headquarters. William came accompanied by his brother Samuel. Brigadier General William T. Sherman, second in command of the department, represented Robert Anderson, who likely was in too poor health to attend in person. The two most prominent civilian leaders from East Tennessee were also present, Congressman Horace Maynard and Senator Andrew Johnson, who, since he was previously governor of the state, was referred to in many newspaper accounts as Governor Johnson rather than by the <clears throat> lesser title of senator. To these latter individuals, Carter needed no introduction, for they were already well acquainted through partnership in the political storms of the past year. And we don't have the minutes of the meeting, but the outline of what was discussed is clear. Thomas described his strategic intention toward East Tennessee. First, to seize and hold the railroad, and second, to relieve from oppression the patriots of East Tennessee by extending the front line of the Union Army into that region, securing it as a safe federal zone. He then recognized Reverend Carter, who laid out a persuasive case that the liberation could be accomplished in one well-timed blow. It was based on his certain knowledge that most natives of that region remained loyal to the Union and could comprise a formidable partisan force that would overthrow the rebels with the support of Thomas's troops. Their signal, and this was the key, would be the simultaneous destruction of the railroad bridges across the state. Carter laid out his plan and asked for authorization and funds. Johnson and Maynard probably knew of Carter's plan and were already in favor of it before they arrived at the meeting. Thomas threw his support behind it, but Sherman was deeply skeptical and his approval was the deciding factor. After much jawboning, Thomas won his reluctant friend over, but the money would have to come from Washington. A footnote here. Oliver Temple cites a report from a congressional hearing in 1891 that contains a curious note indicating that Thomas had expected that Johnson himself would immediately provide unnecessary funds because he had been entrusted with money from Washington, quote, for the defense of East Tennessee, but in this he was disappointed, end quote. Carter, therefore, set out for the nation's capital, using the travel time to sharpen his plan and to identify nine target bridges along the 270-mile railroad. He carried with him a letter that Thomas had dashed off immediately following the September 30th meeting that he could place in the hand of Major General George B. McClellan, who by now had replaced Winfield Scott as General-in-Chief in all but title, pleading, I most earnestly hope you will use your influence with the authorities in furtherance of his plans. Before he embarked for Kentucky, he had conferred with McClellan about strategic objectives in East Tennessee, so he knew the general would be favorably disposed to Carter's ideas. 
As anticipated, McClellan set up a meeting between Carter, Lincoln, and Secretary of State William Seward. The Secretary of War was absent, having gone to survey the situation in the West. Lincoln was pleased with the Reverend's plan, and authorized Carter to draw $2,500 from the Treasury to finance it. McClellan gave his personal pledge of support, promising to send an army to East Tennessee as soon as possible, assuring Carter that he would keep the rebel army in Virginia too busy to come to the aid of their western comrades, and that he would direct U.S. forces in Kentucky to put pressure on Johnston to keep him from counterattacking in the west. With money and assurances in hand, Carter returned to Camp Dick Robinson. His trip to Washington took a little over two weeks. A CHANGE IN COMMAND Within a day or two after the September 30th meeting, Thomas sent formal notice to Robert Anderson of his near readiness to advance into East Tennessee, contingent upon the arrival of reinforcements and adequate equipment and provisions for his troops. Again, he pleaded the urgency of his need for men and supplies. Anderson, however, was not long to be the commander to whom he must report. On October 8th, the 56-year-old general, plagued by ill health since the siege of Fort Sumter, stepped down from his demanding post and semi-retired to an army desk job in New York. Command was passed to the logical choice, Anderson's protege and second-in-command, William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman would soon disclose his own stress-related health problems, however, from the beginning of the war, he had been battling what at that time was called melancholy, and some modern historians suggest he was suffering from what today we call acute clinical depression. Until now, it had not become a performance issue. Immediately, however, Sherman was faced with issues that pressed the weight of command hard on his shoulders, and one of the first things he, he had to do, for example, was, was to resolve the conflict created when Thomas received notice of Mitchell's promotion over him and threatened to resign, and that was a mere headache compared to all that was before him. In the midst of the kerfuffle between Thomas and Mitchell, War Secretary Simon Cameron arrived in Kentucky to see firsthand how the transition was going and why there was still no action on the East Tennessee front. Camp Dick Robinson was one of his stops, and there he saw what Thomas had put into place and how well things were progressing organizationally, but how critical the supply and troop situation really was. The bureaucracy in Washington, so far removed from the Western theater, had regarded slow-trot Thomas's pleas for aid as an exaggeration and an excuse for not moving more quickly. Seeing the Tennessee volunteers performing their drills with outdated muskets, no proper uniforms, and virtually no officers or sergeants with regular Army experience, Cameron understood that, if anything, Thomas had understated the problem. He wired Lincoln on October 16th that, Matters are in much worse condition than I expected to find them. Observing that the fault was not in the commander, but in the lack of supplies and in poor troop readiness. The following day, Cameron heard a briefing from Sherman on the tactical situation in the Department of the Cumberland. Sherman laid out for him the intelligence he had been receiving on Albert Sidney Johnston's movements in Tennessee and Kentucky. Cameron at first thought that Sherman was joking when he said he would need 60,000 fighting men just to defend Kentucky and 200,000 to defeat the South. 
Great God, Cameron exclaimed, throwing up his hands. Where are they going to come from? There are plenty of men in the North ready and willing to come if you, Mr. Secretary, will only accept their services, Sherman replied. He bluntly pointed out that the War Department had turned away new regiments formed in the northwestern states under the assumption that they would not be needed. He emphatically pressed his case with great urgency. Realizing that Sherman was speaking in all seriousness, the Secretary grew alarmed, not regarding the Confederate threat, but regarding the state of mind of his general. Cameron knew Sherman was no fool, but when he looked into his eyes, he saw a man who was rattled, lacking his customary self-confidence and concealing fear. Cameron returned to Washington, leaving behind a staff officer from the War Department as an observer in Louisville. Before long, Sherman's remarks to Cameron leaked to the press, which in turn had a field day with them and sold out hot editions of newspapers carrying sensational headlines about Sherman's madness. It's one of the ironies of history that a prediction made by a general truly on the verge of a nervous breakdown turned out to be an accurate forecast of the war to come. A plan comes together. Back at Camp Dick Robinson, Reverend Carter brought Thomas the encouragements of the president and whatever advice and direction McClellan may have contributed. At this meeting, the two men finalized plans and, at least in Carter's mind, agreed on a range of operational dates and a coordinated plan of attack. Ideally, Thomas's movement across the Cumberland Gap would follow the sabotage operation within days, perhaps a week. Well, there's no doubt that Thomas intended to make good on his promise to help Carter and the underground patriots in Tennessee. However, Carter clearly misunderstood Thomas's contingent commitments for a locked plan. All the general's movements hinged on factors beyond his direct control. One of them was the acquisition of more men, arms, munitions, and supplies, which he had been assured were on the way but had no certain date for their arrival. Another was what the enemy may do. But above all was the question of whether Thomas's superiors would continue to give him the liberty to move in this direction. At this point, however, there was so much pressure on Thomas to go in that no one would have guessed that he would soon be told to back up. Thomas may have been more positive in his assurances than he should have, and William Carter certainly accepted those assurances more naively than he should have. Now, by this time, Samuel P. Carter had at last received formal appointment as a Brigadier General of Volunteers. In fact, the same October 10th bundle of official dispatches that contained the letter from Ormsby Mitchell that so disturbed General Thomas also contained Special Order No. 12, which contained S.P. Carter's brevet commission, backdated to September 16th. Thomas let Carter handpick some officers to assist his brother and Carter chose Captain William Cross and Captain David Fry. Cross was one of the leaders among a still-growing group that in December would be mustered as the 3rd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry. Fry came from the 2nd Tennessee, and he was the captain of F Company. A farmer and sometime preacher from Greene County, Fry had gathered his own group of recruits from a rally held at a church in early September that had taken on the atmosphere of a revival, complete with patriotic preaching, singing, clapping, and shouts of amen and glory to God, and with give the rebels hell, Davy. Cross and Fry, along with First Lieutenant Thomas J. Tipton of C Company from the 2nd Tennessee, 
and at least one other enlisted man, probably John McCoy, uh, Sergeant John McCoy, who we know was with Fry in the days after the bridge burning, would join William Carter behind enemy lines in an espionage operation that would put them at the end of a rope if they were caught. Thomas and W.B. Carter had one more meeting before the former pastor and his company embarked. It was the last direct communication that they would have in this affair until it was all over. Perhaps the greatest flaw in Carter's plan was the failure to arrange two-way communication with headquarters in case of a need to change or abort the mission. It's understandable that the civilian Carter did not think of that. It's perplexing that Thomas did not. Perhaps Thomas did try to warn him that once he crossed the border it was a matter of chance, but neither man left a record of their talk, so we'll never know. Carter and his companions left Camp Robinson on October 18th. Within a day or two, they crossed over a secret passage into Tennessee and began to do reconnaissance and recruitment. Carter may have used some of his money from Washington for travel expenses, food, and mounts, but he reserved the greater balance for those leading the bridge attacks to buy incendiary supplies and especially to provide incentive pay for those who joined the mission. He assigned David Fry $1,000 for that purpose. Years after the war, A.M. Kate, one of the bridge burners, petitioned Congress for federal compensation with the plea that he did not receive the pay promised by Carter. Meanwhile, Zollicoffer had been plodding northward along the Wilderness Road for weeks, but was now in London on and on the doorstep of the last major obstacle to his advance. Albin Sheff arrived in camp barely a day after Carter's departure, and with Zollicoffer threatening Camp Wildcat, Thomas ordered Sheff to take the brigade of Hoosiers and Tennesseans without delay to reinforce Colonel Garrard's Kentuckians. When Thomas released Reverend Carter to conduct his behind-the-scenes mission, he did so in full knowledge of the impending rebel attack. He probably intended to defeat Zollicoffer at Rock Castle Heights, destroy his force before he could escape Kentucky, then cross over into Tennessee and gain control of Knoxville in time to capitalize on the disruption caused by Carter's people. When Sheff repulsed the attack at Wildcat, things seemed promising, although Zollicoffer's easy getaway must have been a disappointment. On October 29th, the 2nd Tennessee marched into London, Kentucky, along with the other units under Sheff's command, and set up camp to await further orders. Thomas had settled it in his mind that an advance into East Tennessee was both necessary and feasible. He had also determined, however, that he would need a full division to accomplish it. He had been requesting reinforcements for weeks, and his movements suggest that he was depending on their arrival within days. But now, headquarters was inexplicably dragging its feet. Around November 1st, he wrote to Sherman that he was prepared to advance into Tennessee as planned, but he still needed four more armed and trained regiments and several more supply wagons, a formal reminder of a request that had already been approved. He announced his objective to seize the railroad and to attack Zollicoffer, and he urged his old classmate to dispatch a force up the Big Sandy River to support his advance through Barberville across the border. Since he was now making the move that Sherman himself had suggested, he fully expected men and materiel to be arriving soon. While his men grew increasingly restless, he waited for Sherman's reply.
Secret Meetings and Rumors On October 30th, Lieutenant Thomas Tipton, a Sevier County native, rode up to W.B. Carter's home in Elizabethton and was received by Carter's wife, Elizabeth. From there, he sent for Daniel Stover, son-in-law of Andrew Johnson and one of Carter's key contacts. Two of the nine target bridges were in Carter County, Carter Station and Zollicoffer, town formerly called Union, but that name was offensive to the local Confederates, so they changed it in honor of the general, who modestly continued to call the town by its original name. These targets were expected to be among the most difficult to destroy. Tipton asked Stover if he would take them as his assignment, and Stover accepted. Within days, he would be elected colonel and given charge of his sector. Clandestine meetings such as this were being held throughout East Tennessee as Carter and his assistants crisscrossed the region, enlisting task force leaders without attracting attention. Carter chose one leader in the locality of each bridge to be destroyed. Each leader was then to recruit his own squad of five or more. All the participants were sworn in to the service of the United States so that, to their own minds at least, they were not criminals or spies, but soldiers in service to their country. Unlike his brothers, W.B. Carter kept a low profile. There, there's never even been a published photograph of him. And apparently, that helped keep him undercover in hostile territory. One of his approaches was to have meetings in ministers' homes. People were used to seeing ministers in meetings with others, and by making contacts through them, Carter and his associates were able to avert much suspicion that their travels might otherwise arouse. Still, avoiding detection could not have been easy. Confederate authorities knew the railroad was vulnerable to attack and were on the alert. Moreover, all the people were involved were amateurs, untrained in the arts of espionage, and, and no one had any idea how many leaks may be springing in the secret plan every time it was discussed. The secret plan was being discussed widely and often, as leaders of each task force brought new men in on the job. It was also talked about by others seeking popular support for it, including Parson Brownlow, who looked for the burning bridges to become signal fires for a general uprising. The coordinated attack was set for after dark Friday, November 8th. The moon was in its first quarter and would set early. A moonless night would conceal their movements and hopefully be to their advantage. On Monday, November 4th, Brownlow and Reverend James Cumming came down to Maryville. Brownlow's appearance would have been noticed simply because of who he was, but it was not unusual for him to visit the city. When scores of pro-Union men also began arriving in town, however, a local Confederate sympathizer estimated 300 to 500, well, it attracted some attention. There was supposed to be a speech by a Unionist orator the following day, but those who were asked indicated they weren't there for the speech. They were vague, however, on why they had come, and nothing stirs curiosity quite so much as a friendly question unanswered. Late in the morning, Brownlow and Cumming went to the home of one of their minister friends, the Reverend W.T. Dowell. They had met there the previous week with a small group, and now their presence drew a large number of others. Some pro-Confederate men followed them out to Dowell's place just to keep an eye on this curious gathering. It was clear to them that 
Something's going on that pleased these Union men exceedingly. They seemed in very good spirits and more confident and defiant than they had been for months. There coming confided to a member of his church that Brownlow had vacated Knoxville and would go into hiding until the Federal invasion expected at the end of the week and would then return to the city and renew publication of the Whig. That one Monday afternoon conversation was apparently the source of a fast-spreading Tuesday morning rumor that Thomas already had a 12,000-man army at Jamestown in Fentress County that was presently advancing on Knoxville. A CHANGE OF CONDITIONS On Wednesday, November 6th, Jefferson Davis was elected President of the Confederate States of America. Now, Davis had been the leader of the Confederacy for months, so it wasn't so much of an election as a ratification. Still, it was an important symbolic statement to the world that a legitimate, permanent Democratic government had been established in Richmond. Inauguration was set for February 22nd, Washington's birthday, of course, to identify this second American Revolution with the ideals of the first. The, uh, this election was proof to a watching world that the southern states stood together in resolute unity against the aggression from the North. In his acceptance speech, Davis condemned Lincoln's tyrannous behavior. He castigated the President of the United States for making war without the assent of Congress, suspending the writ of habeas corpus so sacred to freedom, trampling justice and law under the armed heel of military authority, and dragging upright men to distant dungeons upon the mere edict of a despot. All Richmond applauded, and the Southern newspapers cited the new President's rhetoric with approving editorials. And while rumors swept through East Tennessee that Thomas had bypassed Zollicoffer and was already marching on Knoxville from the west, Sherman was that very day issuing orders for Thomas to hold Sheff at London and await further developments. Based on reports he had received, he was convinced that A.S. Johnston had a massive force at Bowling Green under the command of Simon Bolivar Buckner and that he was poised to attack Louisville and then to sweep eastern Kentucky. Well, Buckner was indeed near Bowling Green, but his force was about one-third the size Sherman believed, and all of Johnston's moves along that line were a feint. Thomas was chagrined at the order to delay, but there was nothing he could do. Not only was the commanding general deferring his request for reinforcements, it looked like he was on the verge of revoking his approval for the whole operation. For now. Thomas had orders to hold Zollicoffer in check in southern Kentucky, but to advance no further. He was painfully aware that his covert operatives across the state line would be left in the lurch if he did not move soon, and there was nothing he could do about that either. Meanwhile, Thomas took the heat for Sherman's jitters. On November 7th, he received a letter from Andrew Johnson making one of his many visits to the camp in London, complaining of Thomas's delay in the invasion of Tennessee. The prickly senator's visits were not always well received. On one occasion, he got into an open shouting match in the Crab Orchard Town Square with General Sheff, troops and officers passing by. I am a United States senator, Johnson was heard to exclaim as he had challenged the general to throw him out of the camp. 
Thomas came out from his office and without a word literally pulled the Polish-born officer by his arm into his headquarters before the men came to blows. That story is related in George Thomas, Virginian for the Union by Christopher J. Einoff. Johnson apparently knew nothing of Sherman's increasingly cold feet. The senator's constituents in Thomas's army had sounded off to him, and he felt the need to voice their unhappiness. Johnson also apparently had heard rumors that troops would be pulled back and warned the general that his troops were restless for a fight even if they had to find one on their own without orders. Thomas, who had moved his headquarters from Camp Robinson south to Crab Orchard, reassured him diplomatically that both he and Sherman were doing all they could to make a move across the border, and he dismissed reports of a fallback as a rumor. As for the threat of a renegade action by the Tennessee regiments, if the Tennesseans are not content and must go, then the risk of disaster will remain with them. Some of our troops are not yet clothed, and yet it seems impossible to get clothing. In conclusion, I will add that I am here ready to obey orders and earnestly hope that the troops at London will see the necessity of doing the same. He forwarded Johnson's letter, for your information, to Shep, who was in charge of the brigade at Camp Calvert in London, and instructed him to clamp down on the disgruntled Tennesseans. It is time that discontented persons should be silent both in and out of the service. I sympathize most deeply with them on the account of their natural anxiety to relieve their friends and families from the terrible apprehension they are now suffering, but to make the attempt to rescue them when not half prepared is culpable, especially when our enemies are perhaps as anxious that we should make the move as Tennesseans themselves. But it is well known by our commanding general that Buckner has an overwhelming force within striking distance whenever he can get us at a disadvantage. I hope you will therefore see the necessity of dealing decidedly with such people and you have my authority and orders for doing so. We must learn to abide our time, or we will never be successful. Well, the well-known facts of Buckner's overwhelming force actually were not true. But they were sufficient to freeze Union forces in Kentucky for another month. Meanwhile, the opportunity for a timely invasion of East Tennessee was lost. But no one yet understood how long it would be before the United States flag would again fly over that region. November 8th, the Night of Burning Bridges. Once all plans were in place and personnel assigned to carry them out, W.B. Carter retreated to a safe house near Kingston and waited to hear the results of his labors. Amazingly, he had kept authorities, who were on high alert, unaware both of his movements and his purpose as he traversed the eastern third of the state. It didn't hurt that the main body of Zollicoffer's army was occupied in Kentucky, leaving few regular troops to patrol the East Tennessee roadways. Confederate statesman Landon C. Haynes of Knoxville had no specific knowledge of any plan, but remained dreadful and apprehensive of the uneasy calm presently prevailing. On the morning of November 8th, Haynes wrote to Jefferson Davis of his worries. If a force shall be thrown into East Tennessee or on the line, which now seems probable, and which General Zollicoffer is unable to defeat, the flames of rebellion will flash throughout East Tennessee. The railroad shall be destroyed, the bridges burned, and other calamities not necessary to mention will follow. On the afternoon of that same day, 
Carter's agents summoned their respective task forces and made last-minute decisions and preparations for their task. They would use dried pine, split and feathered for kindling, wads of cotton wick for fireballs, and turpentine as the accelerant to spread fire on the wooden spans. Some had recent intelligence regarding their targets, but others knew little about whom or what might be guarding the bridge they were to hit. Apart from the leaders, most of those involved found out only a few hours before the attack what specific bridges they were going to burn. In Carter County, Colonel Daniel Stover gave a final briefing to his squad, some of whom had joined only this day and were not fully aware of what they were getting into. At dusk, they set out. Their primary target was the bridge over the Holston at Carter Station. But a whole company of rebel infantry guarded it. They had to let it go. Turning their attention to the smaller one at Zollicoffer, Union, they overpowered the two privates guarding the bridge. One of them turned and ran. The other, Stanford Jenkins, was caught and surrendered his weapon. He knew some of Stover's men, and there was discussion as to whether they should let him live. Well, at length, Christian charity won out over the harshness of war, and accepting his solemn pledge of secrecy, they returned his life to him as they finished burning the bridge. One of the members, a wagon maker named Daniel Ellis, later published an eyewitness account in his memoir titled The Thrilling Adventures of Daniel Ellis, and the title is no exaggeration, and the bridge burning was only the beginning of his adventures, but we'll talk more about him later. H. Crowder and W. T. Cate destroyed two small bridges in Marion County with little difficulty. Cate's brother, Alfred A. M. Cate, led a crew that had to dodge rebel troops on the way to Hiawassee River Bridge, but which completed its task and made a spectacular blaze of the wood-roofed span. Now back in his home territory in Greene County, Captain David Fry led a large party, upwards of 60 men, that destroyed the Lick Creek Bridge 15 miles west of Greenville. Fry, a dashing fellow with jet-black hair and full beard and a flair for the dramatic, surprised and overpowered in a flamboyant fashion the handful of troops guarding the bridge and exulted as he watched it go up in flames. He did nothing to conceal his identity. In fact, he made it a point to announce it. Those who were with him, however, were private citizens with local homes, even if he dared swear them in as soldiers in the Second Tennessee. One of the captive guards heard someone say, Who has Henry Harmon's gun? It was a careless revelation that later proved fateful. Captain William Cross found the Tennessee River Bridge at Loudoun too heavily guarded to risk an attempt on it and withdrew his men silently into the darkness. Likewise, Robert Reagan and James Keener decided it was hopeless to attack the one at Bridgeport, Alabama. Thus, three of the four high-priority targets escaped the night of burning bridges untouched. That left the Holston River Bridge at Strawberry Plains, 15 miles east of Knoxville. Spanning 1,600 feet to 2,100 feet, including the trestle work, it was the single most important target of the operation, both for its size and its central location, and astonishingly, it stood guarded by a lone Confederate private. <laughs> this was the only one of the major bridges that was so lightly defended. The opportunity here was great and it was bungled spectacularly in a scene worthy of a violent war comedy. 
The leader of the ten-man squad attacking this bridge was William C. Pickens, the former High Sheriff of Sevier County. Pickens was a bold, devil-may-care fellow. Audacity was his strong suit. And forethought, evidently, was not. Leaving their horses with two of the men, Pickens led his party through the pitch-dark night along the river bank. Arriving at the bridge, Pickens and one other man climbed the abutment. Apparently, Pickens felt that two could do the job. When they reached the top, Pickens struck a light. Suddenly, a shot rang out, and a bullet struck him in the thigh. As he fell, the sentry rushed out of the guardhouse, jumped on him, and began to grapple with him. He was a smallish man, about 130 pounds, but he made a ferocious attack and was armed with a homemade dirk. Pickens' companion drew his own foot-long homemade bowie knife and began slashing away in the darkness, likely giving as much injury to Pickens as to his assailant. Pistol shots were fired, and after a very confused fight in which no one really knew who landed what blows to whom, the rebel guard fled, leaving Pickens and company to proceed with the bridge burning. And when the bleeding would-be arsonist reached for the matches, however, he discovered that he had lost them in the melee. For this, the pitch-black, moonless night was no advantage, and there was no hope of recovering them, and they were all he had. The expenditure of energy and blood had come to nothing, and Pickens' team had to abandon their mission and seek medical attention for their gashed and bullet-wounded leader. Meanwhile, the intrepid guard who put up such a plucky resistance before being forced to flee emerged from the darkness to become a regional hero. Private James Keelan had no way of knowing how many men he had fought in the pitch-black night, but he felt like it must have been a dozen or more. He was sure that he had killed the man he had shot with his single-shot pistol. He himself had received treatment for three gashes in his scalp, two gunshot wounds, one of which was inoperable but not critical, and a left hand so badly sliced that it had to be amputated. Thereafter, Jimmy Keelan became the man who repelled a mob of no less than 15 rabid Lincolnites bent on mayhem, a number probably inferred from the number of footprints and hoofprints in the vicinity, and single-handedly frustrated their dastardly project while gladly losing one of his own hands in the struggle. His story was sensationally retold with signs of evident exaggeration to the point of fiction by promoter Radford Gatlin after whom the town of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, is named, in a book whose shortened title is The Exploits of the Immortal Hero James Keelan, Who Defended Successfully the Bridge at Strawberry Plains, Atlanta, 1862. After they had done all that they could do, W.B. Carter's commandos faded into the night and looked to see what the result would be. In all, Five bridges were torched, two in the north and three further south. They were all minor spans. Their destruction would be a nuisance, but they could be repaired or replaced in weeks. The successful demolition of the major bridges may or may not have been a significant tactical blow to the Confederacy, but we'll never know. Not one of them was touched at all. Several telegraph lines were cut, but the network remained intact. It is significant that apart from the fracas at Strawberry Plains, there were no casualties. No one was killed in the bridge burning. So passed the night of burning bridges. But the story is far from over. 
and the repercussions from this episode would be as far-reaching as its planners had thought, but not as they had hoped. Next time, The Bridge Burners, Part 2. Backlash. This is Insight, and I'm Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.